This week on the podcast, my good buddy James Siegel, president of Open Path, we talk about COVID-19 and the impact on security and the office space. We talk about how James learns what he's reading. Uh, and we also cover some causes near and dear to James's heart, uh, including homelessness in the LA area and what he's doing to help out there. This is Chase Garbarino, co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show. Let's go! Great. All right. This week's guest, James Siegel, president of Open Path. James, thanks for coming on. Chase, it's lovely of you to ask me. Yeah. How many, how many uh, panels have you and I been on since COVID started together where we have talked about the same thing every time. Well, what I like best about being on a panel with you is that we'll be talking on the panel and then we'll be texting on our cell phones about how lame it is, what it is that we're talking about. And uh, the character assassination between the two of us that happens in terms of, wow, Chase, uh, I, I see you, you just do a, wear a hat again. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say that you know out loud on a podcast. I'm going to text that to you. I wouldn't say anything about like, Hey, nice start, but you know, you don't have to worry about COVID inside. I'm not going to hear those thoughts with my out loud voice. I'm just going to text those to you. Right. You know? Right. And I would never say, I don't like nice button up. I know you're not wearing pants, so it's all for not, but I would never say that on a podcast. So that's, I think you and I have the same standards for business etiquette, right? You know, absolutely. And, uh, it's, you know, I'm pretty sure that between Tom, Chase, and Jane, there's no pants being worn right now. Yeah, totally. That's why I got this, right? I got the I got the neck thing. So, all right. Well, we're going to start a little bit about we. Everybody in prop tech has heard about uh, what you're working on, but I I'm more interested in getting to know what's in here. So, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, where are you from originally? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked. I'm from. Uh, did we talk about though that I'm the co-founder of Open Path? You know, what Open Path does is we help uh, anybody get into their office by unlocking the door with their mobile phone. When I was a small child growing up here in Los Angeles, I thought one day I'll run a company that allows people to use their mobile phones to unlock doors. And my dream has finally come true. That's right, kids. You too can realize your dreams of mobile empowerment by following a path that gets you to where I am. Oh, so uh, mobile empowerment, that legit, have you ever said that before or did you? Just no, I just invented that phrase, mobile empowerment. I, I hadn't heard it in any of the other scripts. So that was, that. that's the magic right there. That's why you, why you get paid the big bucks. Yeah, if only I got paid any bucks right now. That's the problem with, uh, you know, doing this whole venture back thing is that you don't really pay yourself market rate because you'd rather spend that next dollar on hiring uh, an amazing engineer, an amazing salesperson, amazing anybody. Uh, and you deprecate your own uh, income as a result, and you know, wait till you you go public and you get a nice big fat uh, you know stock bump. But uh, you asked me where I'm from. I'm a, a native to Los Angeles. I grew up here. I'm a nice Jewish boy from the Valley, San Fernando Valley. And uh, actually, we came from South Africa. We moved here when I was three years old. And uh, you know, I've grown up on the West Coast. Uh, went to school back east, but always came back to LA because I like the warm weather. And decided to put roots down here and stay in Southern California. This is my home. SoCal, and you, uh, you're you an HBS guy, right? Yes, uh, I did go to <coughs> Harvard Business School. And One I of the smartest. Yeah. Appreciate you bringing that up because uh, I normally try to get that out in the first 30 to 40 seconds of talking to someone. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it, and you're pretty good at it. I've, heard, I, I've seen how you work it in. It's good. It's good. It's great. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter that I did it or did not graduate or that I failed out or that... Um, That's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. Or that I didn't actually go to the business school but attended a seminar there and then put it on my LinkedIn profile. I do like when that happens. Um, you yeah, know, the thing is facts in 2020 anyway, so... Yeah, it's all interpretive information, right? Mm -hmm. It's about how do you want to interpret the information that's being presented to you, right? Exactly, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I've been to HBS campus, so in my worldview, am I from HBS? I'm not totally sure how that works. If you've purchased a, a, a meal at the cafeteria 
you're basically a student, right? That's right. So, but you you did actually go to HBS, and yeah, you. If you don't mind my asking, what year were you at HBS? So I was at HBS uh, in. I graduated in '99, and that's not 1999. And uh, uh, so I was there in '97 to '99. I uh, went to Johns Hopkins for my undergrad. I worked for five years after that at Mattel Toys. I was a brand manager for Hot Wheels. Uh, and then I convinced them that I needed to go back to school to get a little smarter. They actually sent me to business school. So I got a full ride to HBS uh, for two years. I actually spent my summer working at Target as a uh, toy buyer because I was sure that I was going to go back to Mattel and run the company one day and, and be a toy person. Uh, and then when I got out of business school, it was an interesting time. It was 1999. The internet was hot. Uh, there was a guy in my section who uh, was um, you know, had built a, a technology and a company and already basically sold it for a ton of money uh, while we were in business school. Another guy who was in my class went, uh, he was on the cover of Fortune on this huge article about all the freshly minted MBAs going west to you know, have big jobs in the, the dot-com world. And another guy in my class uh, had actually worked with a founder during the summer between business school to uh, write a business plan for a, a company that founder had started and had raised a whole bunch of venture money and uh, was moving to LA to run that company. And I felt like I was missing the boat. Uh, I was going back to my consumer packaged goods company, the same old job. I was going from a product manager title when I left Mattel to a senior product manager title. Upward, upward mobility written all over it. Yeah. And I really, I just wanted to be able to run a business. I wanted to be able to uh, make a difference uh, in a material way and not be a cog in the wheel. And uh, I got presented with an opportunity to, to run a, a web hosting company in LA. And uh, just jumped on it and didn't look back. And since then, I've been in tech and uh, met a bunch of great, smart technologists and product people along the way who were also entrepreneurs. And we started uh, successively, you know, technology companies and did uh, first we did hosting and then we did customer support software and then we did content delivery. And now we're into the physical access control space, which is obviously the coolest and sexiest of all of us. No doubt. And yep. we're going to go deep on that. But when you were at HBS, I mean, were the majority of people going to McKinsey and iBanking and there was kind of a fringe group going to going west? Or what was the what was the kind of breakdown? Because it's, it's been known for banking and consulting and it recently became popularized last several years where venture capital now seems to be the hot thing out of HBS. Um, and it's kind of a leading indicator of what you don't want to do, in my opinion. But uh, what, what about you? You couldn't have been, it couldn't have been the overwhelming majority of people looking to start tech businesses, right? I don't know about the overwhelming majority. There was still a good number of folks who um, wanted to make a career shift and uh, had uh, you know, two to four years of work experience prior to HBS, came in and were looking to shift careers. And a lot of folks went to consulting. A lot of folks went to banking. Yeah. Uh, at the time, hedge funds were pretty popular, and there was a lot of movement to go into that, and then private equity. So, uh, in the general sort of financial world, uh, there was just a lot of interest to go and work on Wall Street, one way, shape, or another, uh, or work as an investor. A lot of folks did go into VC, um, and you tend to find uh, that there's not as many operational folks, folks who want to go, you know, operate a business or work in a business, as there are folks who want to advise, consult, finance, and invest. And I think that's just the nature of uh, you know HBS at the time. Uh, there was a, a, a considerable uh, you know movement out west to go and jump into technology, uh, mm-hmm. and um, and I was not part of that, and I felt very sort of left out because I was in the rare group of some you know marketing consumer packaged goods folks who you know were started at one company, went to business school, and we're going to go back to that other company. And so I was not a tech guy. I knew this much about how the internet worked. Uh, I could barely, you know, figure out how data moved back and forth uh, over a network. I had no idea how my computer worked. Uh, and so I had a, a very uh, abrupt and uh, highly accelerated education in technology when I jumped into my first job. Well, how did you get into the hosting? If you didn't know anything about technology, how'd you pick hosting? How'd they pick you? How'd that work? Out? Like most of my jobs, it's based on stunning good looks, a charming personality, 
and effortless, effortless, just, you know, uh, business acumen. It just, right. the ramp up time for you is like nothing. Right. And yeah. it's mostly the looks, I would say that if you're looking to open a door, you're looking for a good looking person to sell you that, that, that system for sure. It's been my mantra. It's just how right. I, uh, <laughs> and, it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so no, honestly, um, when I got a, when I finished business school, uh, I came back to LA and I had a summer uh, before I went back to Mattel. And uh, one of my friends from school had actually been the person to get this uh, web hosting company in LA funded, uh, and he was coming in as the president. And uh, he, the founder was the, the CEO at the time. And they called me in to help consult for a few weeks on building out a marketing plan because I was a marketing guy. And uh, at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of sophistication around marketing for the internet. It wasn't like a known thing. We were all figuring it out as we go. And so if you have acumen in a different domain and you can bring it to bear uh, in the internet, and this is you know, internet 1.0, and people were like, all right, cool, let's, let's figure it out. And so that's how I got in. I started as a marketing guy and uh, they made me the VP of marketing for this company and convinced me that we'll not go back to Mattel and to join uh, this, you know, upstart venture-backed web hosting company. And so I left Mattel and I joined. And it turned out to be, um, can I curse on this uh, podcast here? Okay. It turned out to be a, a shit show. Mm. So um, but when I got there, you know, we had blown through a bunch of the uh, venture funding at an accelerated rate, made some investments that weren't that smart. Sales had kind of, uh, you know, stopped basically and were stalled. And uh, we had put our burn rate way up. And it became pretty clear after a couple of bad board meetings that we needed to make a change. And when the dust settled, uh, I ended up as president and CEO of the company, along with the original founder. My friends who uh, from business school uh, you know, had brought me in were no longer there. And we let go of 75 to 150 people. And I basically put a turnaround plan in place uh, out of a, a case study that I read at business school about how to do that. And uh, we turned the business around, hired an investment bank, tripled sales, and sold it two months before the bubble burst for an all-cash offer. So it worked out great for our investors, for my friends who pulled me in because their stock was worth a lot. Uh, and um, we kind of got out by the skin of our Two months. Yeah, that's like uh, the PayPal story. Good for you. Yeah. Did you see yeah. the company or was it pure luck? Uh, we didn't see the bubble burst coming, but based on the challenges that we were running into in our own business, the competitive nature and the commoditization of web hosting, uh, the massive amount of capital we would have had to raise to continue to move forward and grow, and the acquisitive nature of a lot of the folks who are out there looking to buy companies like ours and do kind of a roll-up, it just made sense to exit. Yeah. And so you go from web hosting to, you mentioned, content delivery, CDN. Web hosting to customer support. And so... Okay. Okay. Uh, a bunch of guys I met along the way who were running a competitive web hosting company. We got together and uh, and they had just started this software company called Knowledge Base, which was a hosted CRM platform, customer self-service knowledge base. Mm-hmm. And I came in early as a founder to sort of help uh, uh, you know build the company and, and along with them. And we spent five years all sort of you know working in the trenches, bootstrapping that and building it. And what became really clear after five years is we had the market leading company in the tiniest niche in the software industry. Hmm. And uh, we weren't going to be able to take it and make it big. And my business partner, Alex, who uh, is a super smart guy, turned around and looked at me one day and goes, we're working our asses off every day. We're hustling. And um, what we get for it is we just make a a salary, basically. The the equity in the company is not going to be worth a lot. Why don't we go spend as much energy and as much time working our asses off at an opportunity that will actually, uh, you know, make us a, a ton of money? And I said, you know what? That's damn smart. Uh, so let's go do that. And so we turned around, hired a bank, and sold the company. And it was a nice exit, but you know, definitely um, we we spent the the rest of our um, you know time trying to come up with the next idea. And the next idea was EdgeCast. That was the content delivery network. So how did you guys even? How do you get into content delivery? Briefly, because we don't need to go too far. But what is a content delivery network for a lot of people in commercial real estate? To listen to this, so. What, what is a CDN? So a CDN is a real estate play. Uh, it's basically uh, caching uh, popular web content on servers, position all over the globe, proximate to large end user populations. 
And by caching that content or story down on that server, you uh, reduce the latency. You basically improve the time to load a web page. So take a popular website like LinkedIn. If all of the content from that website is stored on servers in all the different major cities around the world, when somebody goes to that LinkedIn page, the image, the HTML, the content all loads super quick because it doesn't have to travel all the way back to San Francisco to a data center. Instead, it's close to you in New York or Chicago or London or you know Saigon or wherever you are. And uh, the internet itself is rather fragile. And so uh, without content delivery networks built into these data centers all over the world, the scale of the internet would actually not be able to be achieved. So what we're doing right now real-time live streaming and recording something, the Zooms that are happening every single day, all of that depends on hundreds of thousands of servers positioned, you know, proximate to all of us that are allowing that live streaming to happen and all of that, you know, data replication to happen in an accelerated way. Right. Big players like Akamai, folks like that are known for CDN. So how did you guys know that that was a thing that was going to be needed? So, uh, so after we sold Knowledge Base, um, three of us, Bill, Alex, and I got together. And we said, all right, we're going to start another company. And uh, we actually went into uh, the office of one of my friends, the uh, founder of that initial hosting company, a guy named Chris Lyman, had partnered up with this other guy named Sammy Kamkar, who's one of my business partners now. And they had uh, actually bought some technology from us at our prior company, Knowledge Base, uh, to be the basis of a new voiceover IP phone system. And they had started the company around that technology. The company was called Phonality. And so they had raised a ton of money from Intel Capital and they were venture backed. They had nice offices and they had some extra space. And so Alex, Phil, and I went and said, hey, can we use three of your cubes in one of the conference rooms for a couple of months while we ideate and try to figure out what our new business is going to be? And they said, sure. And so we moved into the Phonality offices and we kind of came up with our new idea. And we'd you know, go there every morning at 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And we'd look up things on the internet. And we'd sort of, you know, come up with ideas, and we narrowed it down to basically four different ideas that we liked. And we started to prototype all those ideas. And one of the ideas was a really, really bad idea. Uh, it was called Dare Tube. And the idea YouTube had just started to take off was that I could create videos and create a video dare and send you a video dare. And so I'd be like, okay, here's a video dare of me doing this really cool skateboard trick. I triple dog dare you to do something cooler. And then you'd send a video there back to me if you do a cooler skateboard trick and then vice versa. And we thought that would be a great source of organic content and it would take off and be viral. So we hired a developer to start building out the platform and there was going to be a lot of video involved. And so we had to call content delivery networks like Akamai to become customers. And we call Akamai, as well as Limelight and Vitalstream and a bunch of the other guys in the market, every single day, a couple times a day, trying to get a hold of somebody so we could pay them money for their services. They wouldn't return our call. We emailed them. We called them. We used all of our network to try to get in. Nobody would answer our call. The same at all the other CDMs. And so we're like scratching our heads saying, wow, there's so much demand that none of these companies will take our money. Finally, we got a hold of somebody at Limelight that was one of the upstart CDMs. And it was like some kid straight out of, I don't know, straight out of school. And he's like, yeah, look, I'm really busy. Uh, I don't know who you guys are, but I'll sell you. 100 megabits per second connection uh, for like $10,000 a month on a four-year guaranteed contract. And I just looked at it and I'm like, okay, bye-bye. And hung up. And, uh, <laughs> I looked at each other. We're like, we're getting into the CDM business. Because we know how to do that. You know, we're web hosting guys. We know how to run infrastructure. We can build all the software. And there's, yeah. if the customer service, if the pricing, if like uh, if the demand, if all that's that great, we yeah. knew the video was here to stay and it was going to grow. So we, Chucked the DareTube idea. We started building a content delivery network, and we, you know, brought in our tech folks. And next thing you know, uh, we got ourselves a CDN. So I, I don't know why you think DareTube was a bad idea, but that's okay. I, I mean, isn't that what all the viral videos are now today? Like people challenging somebody else to do it. Were you just ahead of your time, maybe? Maybe. Um, uh, one thing that uh, I've always been able to do pretty well is I sell picks and shovels, but I don't actually uh, mine the gold. So yeah. I, I'm not a good and the consumer business kind of guy. I'm a, I'm a B2B kind of guy. Yeah. So, so with Edgecast, you guys sold to Verizon. Yeah. I believe it was for hundreds of millions of dollars if I check the notes here. So that, that was a pretty 
for it. Tom and I were talking about this. Tom put in the notes for the show. Is that good? <laughs> I, I think that's pretty good, right? $400 million is fine. Yeah. Um, what I would say is the division that we have created, um, the part of the business that Verizon holds today that carries a tremendous amount of the internet traffic on it, if you were to spin it off, it'd probably be worth billions and billions of dollars. So uh, we created some real value, and that real value has been realized by the parent company that bought it. And so they got a good deal. And, um, you know, we made good money for our shareholders. And so it worked out well. Um, I think that, you know, it'd be fun to work on a company uh, in, you know, that was maybe doing something with door locks and mobile access that could be worth billions of dollars. So, right. Yeah. Well, before, before we move to that quickly, a ton of the people here at HQO. Uh, built a company called NextAge that just as Verizon bought Edgecast to be its CDN, NextAge got bought to be its whole supply side um, programmatic ad platform. So do you think there's something to building the, you know, the picks and the axes people like ourselves that has attracted um, from, from your technology experience that is starting to attract people that build infrastructure in a lot of other categories to move to prop tech? Yeah. So um, the reason why is the reason we got into this category. Um, almost every other category and vertical has been disrupted mm -hmm. by the internet and by mobile. And this is one, to, one of the few dinosaurs that has not yet migrated over and been disrupted. And so when we saw that uh, cloud and mobile had not really impacted this business uh, like it should have, uh, we saw that as a big opportunity because we don't have to come up with the latest and greatest. We can take the playbook that has worked to disrupt every other industry and apply it to this. And I think that's what a lot of folks like you and me are doing. We're sort of saying, okay, we've got pattern recognition of seeing and having done this in other uh, you know, verticals, let's go do this now in PropTech. Yeah. How did you guys land on, how long did you stay at Verizon? And then how did you land on commercial real estate? I mean, once, once you pay a little bit of attention to commercial real estate, it becomes, for people from technology, you're like, oh, yeah, this is obvious that this needs to happen. But how did how'd you guys arrive there? Uh, we were frustrated users. So, um, you know, we've always been... Uh, Owners of companies who have to lease office space, and uh, that's a terrible experience, isn't it? Shit. Yeah. Well, not just that, but the access challenge of carrying around badges. So, you know, we had twenty offices uh, with uh, you know Edgecast around the world, and then we had about one hundred and ten data centers, and I literally had one hundred and thirty badges. Like it was crazy how many of these things I needed in order to get into anywhere. And God forbid you get on a plane and you're heading somewhere. And you forgot the right badge, you're screwed. Yeah, uh, going through you know the uh, you know basically the ex you know security uh, kind of crap that you have to deal with at the front door of a data center or whatever. It's not fun. So we saw that as, and, and we knew also how old this RFID technology was that runs badges and how unsafe it was. So in a cybersecurity oriented world where having uh, basically open access to every single door because nothing is really secure and safe. It seemed like way too big a vulnerability. People can just walk in and take a laptop with all the company data and you're spending millions of dollars trying to protect the network and put in firewalls and sniff traffic when literally somebody can just walk right in with a cloned card that they copy at Ralph's supermarket and just take a laptop with all the information or plug in a USB and stick a virus in or do whatever they want. It just seemed kind of crazy. So yeah. So when did you guys start? We started in 2016. And, um, you know, we how to make hardware. Uh, hardware is not that tough. I mean, the one thing I'd say about the way the world works today with uh, the turnkey uh, manufacturing capabilities and digital design capabilities available now uh, in a much more commoditized and uh, available kind of way, you can build stuff hardware, you can, you know, prefabricate chips, you can uh, use open source capabilities to iterate in, on all this new IoT stuff much faster than you could 10 years ago. Just like, you know, when I started at my web hosting company, I was there, building out a website was really tough to do. You'd have to hire a huge design firm and pay them millions of dollars to build a website. 
Uh, now you can go to WordPress, click a button, you get a template, and you've got a really nice looking website for nothing. Uh, I think the same thing with manufacturing, where there's so many different ways to uh, iterate very quickly on really good technology and, and do so at a very low cost that you can do short run manufacturing for new tech with really good quality. Uh, and then when you get to a point where you need to do large scale hardware manufacturing, you can you know move it off to someplace where it's very cost effective. But we were able to turn around hardware pretty quick. Uh, hardware doesn't scare me. Uh, software doesn't scare me. What uh, is you know most challenging about this business and this category is do we time it right? Did we time it right in terms of uh, the buyer persona? Are the real estate owners ready to change and to move? Will they adopt this technology? Are the tenants and the occupiers ready to change and move? Will they adopt this technology? And that's what we spent the most time thinking about. Like the trends of mobile, uh, the trends of like Internet of Things, right? Uh, all of the transitions that are happening in the workplace with five different generations of workers all coming in together and having different needs. Uh, you know, the, the, buying choice of security people now choosing to be more IT oriented than real estate facilities oriented. All of those trends contributed to us sort of saying, okay, it seems like this is the right time. Within the next two to five years, if we have the right product in the right place at the right price, we're going to be able to sort of own this category. And so far it's paying off. It seems to be right. Yeah. You and I had a conversation, I don't remember now, a year or two ago, whenever it was in New York City about, um, my belief was that property owners had to get into the business of providing prop solutions like open baths because the the box itself, the building, is more and more commoditized and they need to provide value outside of simply the physical space. So in, ter- in terms of, you know this well, you've documented how you've built and sold technology companies, you know that it's not purely about having a good product um, and at the right time, at the right price. Um, it's about distribution. You know, For you, you guys have to convince people to make physical changes, right? To adopt a, a physical product. So from a distribution standpoint, you know, how, are, how is the market playing out? And I know you guys put a lot of work into channel the channel integrators and things like that so tell us how that's going yeah uh the one thing i'd say is um you have to be patient uh but if you have a a long uh perspective on this category it is a tremendously valuable space to be we're the lock on the door um so it's it's not a nice to have it's a need to have yeah so everybody needs us um, and um, the nature of uh, the, the business is a relationship-based uh, business, both on the landlord side, where they want to be comfortable with the company and the technology, on the occupier side, where the purchasers uh, want consultative help to understand how to best apply uh, IoT and security in this new world order, and then on the channel side, where you've got system integrators, security installers, um, you know, locksmiths, people up and down sort of that, that food chain who uh, are trying to figure out how to best serve their customers with the right technology. And it takes a while for those folks to feel comfortable adopting new entrants and new technology uh, because the legacy providers in this category have not innovated much and, and they have a hard time innovating and getting feature and product velocity at, at a reasonable pace into the market. Well, they, they're kind of like the, the traditional innovators dilemma, right? Like they've got a great business model. They don't, yeah. have, they don't have a ton of reason to innovate other than now it's going to become an existential crisis for them. They're going to have to, right? But the business worked well for them. I mean, Asa Bloy, you look at like the big owners of uh, HID and some of the legacy incumbents. It was a great model. It's a great model, and uh, it's one, however, where I think they've enjoyed uh, rich margins at the detriment of their customers. Uh, mm-hmm. They haven't sort of passed forward the technology savings uh, and the manufacturing sort of you know cost reductions that have happened in the marketplace to their customers. Uh, the channel uh, has also had to change where uh, a lot of the folks who have been doing the installations of these systems depended on a new uh, sale happening every single day, right? So it's a one and done install. You get paid up front for the labor, for the hardware, for the software, 
and you move on to the next, and you move on to the next. And uh, when you go through a crisis like COVID, where everything just stops, and you don't have any installs to do, and you don't have any business coming in, you have to furlough all your people or fire them, and your business is in disarray. If, however, you were selling and deploying a, a recurring revenue service like OpenPath, where you have a monthly recurring revenue for the SaaS product that we provide, and you're getting a cut on that, you have an ongoing concern and you can weather the storm of economic shifts and market shifts and weather challenges or whatever's happening. And I think that's a big change that's happening with our channel, where they're seeing that not only does the cloud and the mobile bring uh, advantages from a technology and security and usability perspective to their customers, but it also helps them change their business to be uh, more resilient to the uh, economic you know, headwinds that they're running into, uh, given what's happening in the world. There's also got to be some economies of scale. Like when you think about managing for a lot of people that particularly are on the asset management side, they don't really know how the sausage gets made in terms of the process of a tenant company emails the property manager new tenants and they like manually bang it into a on-prem ACS. And then you have all these cards floating around out there if it's kind of a legacy system. And some of them get passed to another employee and you've got the wrong identity. It's like being managed in the cloud. Number one, you could, in theory, save a lot of costs because you could manage multiple properties from one location in some instances. But from a security perspective and a data perspective, there's got to be huge ROI. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about um, anybody who has a trip and fall incident, they have to go now review the camera. Uh, you have to know where somebody was and when they came in. And, you know, the access logs tell you that. Um, the fact that, you know, you've got um, the ability to know in real time how many people are in your space and uh, use that for security measures. If there's an active shooter and you need to get everybody out of the building, you know that they've left. You can muster them in a different place. If there's a tornado or an earthquake or a hurricane and you need to get people down to a shelter, you can unlock all the doors and override all the systems with your mobile phone with a click of a button. If you don't want to uh, meet a vendor or a contractor at, at a specific door or location and you want to let them in, you can do that remotely so that you don't have to drive all the way over there. The property management burden, the security burden, and the lack of uh, access to this siloed data that had been so hard to get uh, is now uh, no longer really a, a concern. And it changes the way that you administer, uh, run, and manage properties. It changes the relationship that you have with the tenant. And so the high-value, high-touch things that you as a landlord want to do to curate that tenant experience and make sure that it is the best possible, you can spend time doing because the menial tasks associated with uh, maintaining a server, putting antivirus on it, printing badges, constantly moving paperwork back and forth to get you know all the different sign-up sheets from the customer to the property manager to the parking person to the security person, all that's gone. And now it's all digitized. So uh, it really does allow you as a, a building owner to focus on the things that matter that make a difference to your clients. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things asset folks, they think about kind of the wow factor of, you know, I use my phone and it up and opens a turnstile or, you know, triggers the lock in an elevator or on the door, whatever it is. I think one of the things we've talked about in my belief is that buildings are the next major computing platform. And the, the fundamental source of truth of a building is who can be in or out of a certain area. And that's what you do, right? Like foundationally, when you're looking at making technology investments, one of the things that, you know, when we're talking to landlords and big tenants that own their spaces, I'm not sure how they start to, in a smart way, how you can manage space without this type of system. I don't, I don't see before you do anything else, even, you know, our, our layer on top of it, which, you know, we think is mission critical. You know, we continually say like the point of a building is you're either in it or you're out of it, right? Like it's to, it's to um, house people. So um, what do you think is the friction or why when you run into folks that aren't making this investment, 
know, what is it that they don't understand? Is it purely cost savings, short sightedness? You know, where where do you run into folks that that don't understand why this system is going to be? I think it's going to be table six. Yeah. Um, so if I ever have a um, if I have a greenfield opportunity where somebody just is building something from scratch or just needs a brand new access control system, I almost always win them. Right. Because right. right. they're like, all right, this is great tech. It's future proof. It works. Let's do it. Um, where I run into problems is when somebody has made a considerable capital investment in a legacy on-prem solution, and it doesn't do a lot of the things they wanted to do, but they paid money for it, and they've been advised that this is kind of what they should put in, and it's there. Now what do they do? Um, it needs to reach a threshold of pain for them where it just simply won't cut it. And a basic card access system does cut it, Right. Like if it's there and it's working and people can come and go and you've already got people employed, processes in place, everything's set up and ready to go, you don't need to rip it out and to go put in open path uh, because at the end of the day, the pain's not as material for you. And you'd rather sort of, you know, uh, you got a lot of other fish to fry, right? You got a lot of other challenges to deal with. I think what we typically find is there's a trigger. There's some trigger that moves people to sort of need to do this. They have a capital budget because they're retrofitting the building. They're changing out property management companies. Uh, the building's transacting. It's moving from one owner to another. They need to upgrade it and put a bunch of you know new uh, capabilities in. Uh, it's a new construction coming out of the ground. If you're a tenant, it's part of your TI budget. You have to bring your own access control, and so you're going to want to put in something that's future-proof. Those are the triggers that we tend to see. It, it was uh, rare before COVID that we would see somebody just upgrade the system because they wanted these new mobile capabilities or security capabilities or data. Uh, now, post-COVID, we're seeing that because of safety and wellness, people are actually saying, okay, look, I'm going to pull in my capital budget from two years to now, and I'm going to go ahead and upgrade my access control, as well as a number of other things so that I can entice the tenants who are reluctant to come back to the building to come back. I want them to see that I've made as a landlord a material investment in their safety and security that allows them to have technology to monitor, uh, to manage occupancy, to enforce social distancing, to do contact tracing, and that gives you an increased amenity for the lease that you're already paying but might likely not renew. Uh, because you're looking to you know move or, or shrink your, your your footprint, and I think that if there was ever a time to make capital investments in your buildings, this is the time when they're empty. This is the time when people aren't coming into work as much because there's no disruption. Uh, and I'm hard pressed when I run into somebody who's just like, whoa, 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 no one's coming in. This is the time to hold on to my money because I'm worried. This is the time to not invest in anything, right? And to basically you know just lockdown. That's a great approach if you plan on being out of business in the long term. But mm -hmm. if you plan on thriving and coming out of this stronger, this is the right time to invest. Uh, and the biggest, most successful portfolios out there are doing just that, right? And so I can give you example after example of forward-leaning, technology-oriented real estate companies that are taking this as their big opportunity to come out stronger. They're going to go buy the other distressed buildings. They're going to own the best real estate in this category. They're going to have the best tenants. And they're looking at this as a chance to go from the market leaders that they were to the ultimate dominator, right? They're just like, this is going to flush out the little guys. And frankly, I think they're right. I think this is when people really need to think about whether they want to be in this business or not. Yeah, leads and market share established in recessions. That, that's been proven. And so you're, you've seen that because, you know, calling, a, calling it like it is, commercial real estate has not been a very customer-oriented business. Mm -hmm. And have you seen with COVID, and there's a couple of layers to this, there's the customer, the tenant, and then there's the end user, which is the individual. Have you seen a significant, um, I guess, heightened uh, importance put on the customer and the end user experience from the groups that you guys are dealing with? Yeah, I'd say it's a mixed bag. And yeah. so in certain of our portfolio partners that are absolutely uh, almost obsessed with, right? They're mm -hmm. thinking about a, uh, a completely 
different footprint, floor plan, uh, technology experience, user experience for their customers. And they're using this uh, COVID situation as a catalyst for change within their organization, within their portfolio. Other folks are just uh, in a frozen spot. They're just literally frozen in place. They don't know what to do. And they are looking at the ambiguity associated with post-election, post-pre-vaccine, don't know what's happening. Uh, They're getting paid. Their commercial tenants are paying their rent, but they don't know if those folks are going to renew. They're worried about what's going to happen next year. And their response is, hoard cash, hold tight, and just wait, right? And and I'm not saying that's not always the right thing to do, uh, but it does feel like that if you are behind the ball and you didn't read the tea leaves right, such that when everybody starts to take action and move after the dust settles, you're not going to have installers who can put in and upgrade your elevator. You're not going to have service providers who will slot you in and be available to actually up, do the upgrades in your buildings, and you're going to be way behind the rest of the real estate folks who made those investments. And let's talk about the sublet market, right? So right now, there are so many corporations that are putting space up for sublet because they want to you know, shrink their footprint, and they'll be the landlords themselves, right? And so they're not going to get give the space back to the, the primary landlord. They're going to basically sort of say, okay, we're going to you know, sublet this and figure something out. And when you have corporations that have, uh, you know, 90 offices in America that are shrinking that footprint to 60, and they have 30 different offices that they basically have to sublet out, they need the flexibility to be able to manage flex space, uh, short-term tenants, uh, you know, lease negotiations and technology requirements and safety and security needs for all of their subtenants. So a lot of our enterprise customers are actually deploying OpenPath now in all the space that they're planning on subletting because they need the flexibility to be able to deal with whatever the market demand is for space, which is relatively small, so that they can take on flex tenants. They can take on somebody for six months as a sublet and then quickly you know, turn that around and get another tenant in right after that. They don't have to change the locks on the doors. They don't have to change the codes. Uh, they don't have to collect the badges. Uh, it just works with a mobile credential. Right. And that kind of, that also points to, and one of the things that we've seen when we're talking to uh, landlords, but also large tenants, and you sell to both, um, there's all there's compounding value to having open path in more and more space. That technology inherently has certain network effects, and for your system and operating like solution, that that's pretty obvious when you look at. You use the example of a big tenant with 60, 90 spaces, but also a landlord with multiple buildings. There's compounding value to the management of cards and access and things like that. But there's also a user experience compounding value for me if I have open path and you used to work at Verizon. Verizon has buildings all over the country, the experience of going to different offices do you see a lot of people in the space kind of understanding the concept of the network effect and the value of the further they roll you out, almost more and more value accumulates to them? I, we, don't, we don't see a lot of understanding around the network effect necessarily. Like we're, People are starting to pick it up, but it's pretty powerful. It is. Um, <clears throat> so um, it, it just it manifests so differently in different scenarios. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a large uh, uh, pizza restaurant franchiser who's rolling us out across, you know, 30 of his restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, part of a much larger brand that has franchises everywhere. And when he talks to the other franchise owners and sees what he's, they see what he's doing, they're like, oh, yeah, we got to do that for our, our stuff as well. That way, if he's got drivers, you know, uh, working at one store and he has a, a demand at another geo that's close by, he can flex those drivers and they can access the other store by just a configuration change on the phone. All kinds of different reasons, right? Uh, at the same time, I have landlords uh, who have deployed us in buildings. And because those buildings, even though they have access control at the front door, they're suburban properties. The doors are unlocked almost all the time anyway. Um, the tenants don't actually use the credentials much at all. And so we haven't seen an uptake in the tenants moving over to the access control system, uh, open path. They just continue to use what they have. Whereas I have uh, other buildings that are more urban 
where the tenants are using the mobile credential every single day to get into that. So I have a, a building in San Francisco in the financial district. They just upgraded Open Path. It's with a, a large, you know, global uh, portfolio owner. And the day they upgraded the building, I got five calls from the office managers for five of the tenants saying, "This is amazing. We need to upgrade our system." And right. that, hey, they're going to rip out the system they have, and they're going to put an Open Path one because it works with the building, and two because they just love this, you know, capability. And when I got those tenants turned out that that one ten, one of those tenants has ten other offices around the U.S. and now they're migrating those ten other offices to open back. And so that's kind of how it works. It's a chicken and egg game. You never know if it's going to be the tenant that pushes the landlord to upgrade, the landlord that ends up you know reflecting on the tenant. That one office that get the other offices, one franchise owner that talks to the other franchise owner. Like it, it's just there's a virality to it for sure. Uh, and one that I don't know if you guys see so much in your business. Are you seeing that somebody? you know, experiences the HQL amenity uh, and they have that in a building and then they now sort of go to another building and they say, oh, I want to get this here and they talk to the landlord. How, how does the virality work in your business? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely, so we've got about 100 of the Fortune 500 tenants in our landlord's buildings. And obviously when you're in one of the offices and your landlord has an application like ours, uh, we've started to see the fortune, you know, the big, the big occupiers, uh, both reach out to us directly and then also push their landlords saying, you know, we've got a tech enabled experience in landlord X or landlord Y's building. Like, why don't you guys have this? Because, you know, we're managing leases all over the country and we expect top of the market experience. Um, we also hear from the tenants, you know, the, our initial go-to-market and our offering is very much for the landlord in the shell of the building where you're getting uh, content, you're integrating with e-commerce or the retail or the amenity centers, you're integrating with the access control like OpenPath if it's for the shell, you're integrating with the visitor management system for the lobby, um, but then you have the access solution for the suite different visitor management systems for the suite, room bookings for the suite, right? Uh, for the occupier. And they're like, well, we don't want multiple apps for multiple things. Are we able to permission certain features just for our office space within the building? So, you know, we've spent a ton of time building a very robust um, roles and permissioning system for people in tech. We're used to these things. It's like being able to create custom roles within something like a CRM and Salesforce. Uh, that enables our landlords to be able to not just provide specific suite, but individual users. So an office manager has certain capabilities that an average employee might not have, right? So we see that flywheel compounding significantly as we start to move into um, more landlord space, more occupier space that it's, to your point, it's a little chicken and egg. Sometimes it's the the landlord initiating, sometimes it's the occupier, but there, there's going to be a lot of, uh, I think, compounding value for solutions like HQO and OpenPath, where um, the more I'm able to access a certain experience when I am you know, doing something with regards to physical space, that starts to become the expectation, right? Initially, you're a market leader and you're separating yourself by adopting these things, but it starts to become table stakes. So you know, we, always, we always talk about you know, when, when people are looking for ROI cases, we say, well, what do you think the first bank that developed a mobile app, what was the initial ROI? It was probably a little squishy, right? You know, it's like, are we saving money on physical checks? No, because we still need to do those. It was a convenience thing for the consumer. Now, would you even consider going to a bank that you couldn't do things on the internet? Like you would literally still have to physically go to the bank to do all those things. I certainly wouldn't. But um, I think a lot of that is going to ha- start to happen. And I think what's happening with COVID is, you know, five to seven years of innovation is going to be accelerated in two to three, most likely. Yeah, that feels about right. So let's talk. You guys just did something with social distance index. What is that? 
what we track is all the door unlocks at uh, a complement of our properties. We basically uh, took about a thousand different locations and standardized the tracking across the last six months. And it allows us to see uh, who's coming and going at, at, at what rate. So you were able to kind of see on it's openpath.com forward slash social distancing index. And you can also find it on our site navigation. It's just an easy way to see uh, what happens in America as people uh, start to sort of, you know, uh, lock down. Uh, and then, you know, uh, is there a time when we start to go back to work? And when we start to go back to work, uh, are we going back to the gym? Are we going back to the restaurant? Are we going back to work? Uh, how does it work across different verticals? And you can just track that real time and kind of see. And it's a, it's a roller coaster, right? As different geos have uh, surges and basically lock down uh, or open up. Uh, and it's uh, just more data to show us uh, the differences around our country in terms of uh, local policies, state policies, federal policy, and how that's being implemented. I think it's one of the, I mean, it points to the fact, again, when you think about, I think a lot of traditional real estate people view this as, am I able to unlock and lock a door, right? Like, I just need a system that works with cards. You're talking about there's a once in a, hopefully once in a lifetime event in a pandemic. And simply because you're, system is able to connect to the internet, you're now providing an intelligence layer on something that you wouldn't have even foreseen in 2019. When you're talking about a system that's you know, not, not cloud-based, not connected to the internet, you can't do those things. So, I mean, have you guys thought through all of the possibilities of what, outside of the cost savings on managing an access system and the convenience, the user experience, I mean, the data is massively valuable. I mean, there's a, there's a million other things you guys could potentially inform. Yeah. So data is a big part of what we provide to our portfolio owners. So I'd say for our large uh, Fortune 1000 enterprise clients who roll us out across their footprint and for our large real estate portfolio customers, we provide them a, a, a product called Present, a data product, and that is giving them access to uh, information that allows them to benchmark each of the buildings against one another, each of their spaces. They can kind of see... Uh, who's there, uh, how it's being used. And because we can track uh, any uh, authorized user in one of your buildings and not out of your building, just in your building, based on the Bluetooth data on their phone, uh, we basically have a network of Bluetooth sensors set up throughout the building because all the readers are Bluetooth sensors as well. And that allows us to have a much uh, better data footprint to feed your business intelligence system uh, with you know real-time information about who's using what, where, and how. And that allows you to operate your building smarter and, and, and drive better NOI. The one thing I will say, though, is that having an internet-connected uh, access control system, is it, it seemed theoretically like a very good thing prior to COVID. And once COVID happened, we saw a practical life-saving capability roll out in real time. And that was this. We used to have a feature called Touch to Unlock. It still exists, where... When you walk up to a door, you keep the phone in your pocket, you walk up to the door, you touch the reader with your hand, and the door unlocks and you walk in. Uh, what we saw right away with COVID is that nobody wants to touch anything. You want to basically uh, stay away from touching common services. And over a weekend, our developers uh, built a new technology called Wave to Unlock. And this is the ability for you to go to a door, phone's in your pocket. Now, in front of the reader, you just wave your hand and the door unlocks. You don't have to touch it. No germs. And we pushed that out to thousands of doors with a click of a button. No trucks had to roll out and upgrade firmware. No professional services fee for somebody to go out there and do it. No administrator burden by having this. Like literally, if you click a button and it's done. So the idea that you have future-proofed every single building that you put open path in so that you can take into account and flex and respond to whatever the world gives you whether it's uh, you know a pandemic or a natural disaster or an active shooter or something like you can react and respond in real time and have kit in place, hardware in place that upgrades and it doesn't cost you anything. That is pretty amazing. And so uh, and that's one of the sort of moments I had where I realized that we have just delivered a huge benefit to all of our customers and they didn't even know. Like it just one day, they could touch the unlock the next day they could wait. No germs, no time. Yeah. That that is going from a uh, 
a vitamin to a painkiller. Yeah, it is a vitamin to a painkiller. Wow. You come up with that on your own? These are the short one-line snippets that Tom needs to, you know, push out on social media, man. Not my first rodeo. Nah, it went from tequila to Viagra. That's what I would have basically. You know. Ah, shit. Again, he one-ups me. Uh, all right. We're running up on an hour. I got a bunch of other stuff I want to ask you. So talk, tell us what driveway drinks is. So uh, we basically have uh, our employees in different groups come to my driveway and uh, socially distance and bring their own lawn chair. They bring their own cocktails and we just have drinks. And it's just a way for all of us. There's a rave where you guys are dancing like very much close to each other. Yeah. We yeah. only do that with our technology partners. Uh, <laughs> and so to the degree that you were, let's say, using our SDK to embed a mobile credential in your mobile app, to our SDK rave, where um, it's basically just a lot of rubbing oil and uh, uh, and some cocktails. It's it's a good yeah. time, right? Yeah. Which is just the the added ROI for all of our hopeful customers that are listening. There you go. Uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a special moment uh, between partners. Uh, so anyway, driveway drinks is really about uh, getting the team together in uh, any way. Right. And, and it's a socially distanced way to sort of, you know, come together and just, you know, reconnect and, and, and just talk. Uh, we're all a little zoomed out. So uh, it's been a, a pretty good tool for us. Uh, you know, we have uh, multiple offices around the U.S. And so uh, we, we don't necessarily do it everywhere. But where we have a large uh, group of uh, open pathers, we try to get together and, and do that. And it's been fun. Love it. All right. We're going to the, the quick fire round. So this is called the Let's Go Show, which is. Uh, our internal values, uh, the acronym Let's Go, Learning Excellence, True Speed, Goodness, Ownership. So we've got a couple of recurring themes that we like to ask people about. So learning, uh, two-part question. Number one, what are you reading right now? And the second part of the question is, in general, how do you get your information? So um, I just finished uh, my favorite book in the world, which I reread every year, is called The Alchemist. And uh, I have four boys. Uh, they're 13, 11, uh, 9, and 9. And my 9-year-olds and I have been reading The Alchemist as the bedtime story. We read, you know, five or six pages every night. And we just finished it. And um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's, a, it's one of those life-formatting uh, books in terms of how you sort of think about how you want to live your life. And every night we'd have a discussion about, you know, what transpired in the book and how it, you know, how it makes you think about life and what you want to do. And, and that was great. Uh, on a uh, it, maybe less serious note, uh, my 13-year-old has been writing a lot of fan fiction around his favorite uh, book series, which is called Keeper of the Lost Cities. And uh, it's a little bit um, like uh, Harry Potter, but with elves. Uh, and so in order to relate better to him, I read the series of eight books. And it was kind of cool. Uh, and so, yeah. That's, nice little uh, getaway there for you. Yeah. From the challenges of COVID. Indeed. Um, all right. I like wait, wait, you asked me where do I get my information, right? Yeah, how do you get your information? You said you reread a book every year, so that's interesting. I, I have a list that I try to reread. How do you get your daily information? What's your informational diet? So my day-to-day stuff is, um, it's tough. Uh, I've become so frustrated with the polarization of uh, the country that we live in and uh, the lack of accurate information that I kind of see. Uh, I used to listen to NPR every morning when I drove to work, which is a little bit left-leaning, but nonetheless, um, you know, I felt like I got a decent amount of info. What I have to do now, at least from a news perspective, is I have to go to uh, NBC, CNN, Bloomberg, Fox, and I basically need to like look at like you know seven different ways that people wrote about something that happened, and I need to sort of figure out what I think is probably the truth. The um, triangulation, I do the exact same. It's kind of exhausting that you do have to do that now, but you do. It's- yeah, it is. Um, I still, for the most part, trust the New York Times. Uh, and so I tend to believe most of the stuff they write. Uh, but otherwise, um, you know, I'm very skeptical of most everything I read, including basically, you know, some of the news for the Times, but you never know. Uh, so, yeah. And then um, I try not to get my news from social media. So my industry news uh, in the uh, prop tech world, there's always our friend Beckerman and what he writes on CRE tech. Uh, yeah. LinkedIn gives me a decent amount of info. Uh, I spend most of my time talking to my peers in the in the space. So you and I will have an update you know, every couple of weeks, and, and you know, there's a lot of scuttlebutt that we exchange, and that's where sort of I hear. Yeah, 
we we do tend to catch up during those panels that we sit on. It's nice. Yes, I indeed. always tell by your face when you're like, "Ah, oh, man, leave me alone." I'm trying to pay attention. Yeah, when you see me looking like this, <laughs> <laughs> and then a the little finger pops up. Uh, all right, truth. We got a good one here. I'll I'll let you pick between two options. Either uh, an unpopular opinion that you hold uh, that a lot of other people probably don't hold, or certain business etiquette pet peeves. Oh God. Um, business etiquette pet peeves. Here we go. Tom, Tom loves this one. <laughs> uh, there's two things in no specific order. The first one is people who wear their hat backwards. We're trying to have a business conversation here. Uh-huh. You be wearing that hat backwards. Look, it, it goes. It goes from uh, the worst offenders. People who wear their hat backwards. <laughs> Second worst offender. People who wear a freaking hat. Right. <laughs> right. And then, then basically after that, it's guys who wear vests, right? Anybody who's wearing a vest. Uh, and then from there, basically, it's the no pants crowd. So those are like my... my, my you're my, at the bottom of your business pet peeves. You're not at the top like Tom here, but you're, you're at the bottom. The second category that I have a real problem with is people who use the word like as a filler. Too many likes frustrate me. Mm. Like, uh, so... Yeah, like, you know, like what? Like, come on, you know, think before you speak. But you're in California. Didn't you guys kind of pioneer that? If you're holding a joint, you can say like, that's fine. But if you are not bogarting that joint, you better use a more efficient way of speaking. Yeah. Okay. That, that adds up to me. All right. And then I guess we'll, we'll end on a bit more of a serious note, but uh, goodness... I know you're involved in some initiatives to try to tackle some of the homeless initiatives. So, um, one, what what's the initiative that you're involved in? And two, what do you think needs to happen to ultimately put it put a dent in the, the homelessness problem? Look, uh, yeah, I'm involved with an organization called the Giving Spirit, and uh, I've been involved for 20 years. Uh, it is not a long term fix, but it is an opportunity for volunteers to come together put a survival kit together and distribute it to homeless folks out in the street. We've been doing that in Los Angeles and have served about 50,000 homeless people over the last, uh, you know, 20 years, uh, giving them this survival kit that's got, you know, it's a duffel bag with a bunch of stuff in it that you need to survive where you stand. Um, what's happened from this is, number one, a much greater awareness amongst volunteers of homeless people. So they're not just, you know, ghosts that you walk by uh, in the street every day, but they're people, and you notice them and you see them. Uh, two, it provided uh, a much greater sense of humanity and hope for the homeless people that we've interacted with and met, who are considered and consider themselves to be outcasts and not part of our societal fabric. A lot of the people that you meet are there because they're not ready to be back in as part of society. They might very well be capable of settling in, having a job, uh, you know, doing their thing, but they're not ready because they've had some trauma happen in their life and something's gone wrong and, and they just are in a bad place. And that moment where you feel connected to humanity, where you have hope, where somebody unsolicited gives you something to help you, that is often a reconnecting, life reaffirming moment where you realize, okay, you know, I might be ready to be back in this world. And that's what we've seen, and that's what I've experienced, and that's why I've been so involved with this organization. I think there are a lot of structural challenges in our society that are uh, causing uh, the homelessness issue to become more and more uh, real every single day. Um, you know, a large percentage of homeless folks are children, uh, and you know, the average age of a homeless person in LA is nine years old. Uh, there's a huge population of veterans who are homeless and more more apropos than ever today's veterans day and you take a look at the number of vets who are homeless who've come back from fighting our wars uh, all over the world and who come back to nothing and have all kinds of different issues both medical and psychological that they have to deal with as well as have lost jobs and have disrupted family lives and are in these tough situations i don't think there's anything wrong with helping other people i don't think there's anything wrong as a community both in the private sector and also as a government uh, and on the public sector to help people 
I think helping people is the right thing to do. I think uh, putting your head in the sand and cutting programs and not volunteering and not giving is the wrong thing to do. The amount of the government money and effort and time that goes into helping people, that can be debated. But I don't think there should be a debate on whether or not we should help other people. We should be helping them. Yeah. Well, it's a great cause and good good call out of Veterans Day. Uh, thank you to, if we happen to have any veterans, I know we got a bunch that work at HQO. Um, because of them, you and I get to sit around and bullshit about IoT door locks and uh, business etiquette and all the fun things that we, we covered here today. Yes. Uh, a big thanks to the Open Path Vets and all of our customers and partners uh, who have dedicated their lives to serving our country. It's, uh, it's really something that we need to be grateful for, not just one day a year, but every day. Yeah, well said. Um, all right, Tom, did we cover everything? Love it. Look at that. Just breeze through an hour, my man. Well, hopefully it wasn't too boring. You guys have a lot of edit work to do, but, uh, you know.